Hi, I'm Audrey, and you are listening to Seattle Goats Podcast. And radio show with our dad, Jeff Shulman. I'm Jeff Shulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. And I'm excited to return with another season of Seattle Growth Podcast. I started Seattle Growth Podcast in 2016, a time when Seattle was in transition while experiencing unprecedented economic and population growth. I wanted to bring diverse voices together for a constructive dialogue about where Seattle's been and where it is going. Fast forward to 2020, and we find ourselves again in a time of transition. The pandemic has ushered Seattle into an era of great uncertainty and anxiety. Will the city continue to be a desirable place to live, to work, and to do business? Will the economy and population growth of the last decade continue into the 20s? Like many of you, I felt isolated during this pandemic, yet curious about Seattle's future and how others are navigating these troubled times. Seattle has been in the national spotlight, and it can be a challenge to find an unbiased, broad view of life in Seattle and what's ahead for those that live or work in the city. Thanks to the kind folks at KBFG Radio, I am taking to the streets of Seattle, equipped with a mobile recording studio that allows for safe, socially distanced interviews. I'll be asking roughly the same questions of all my guests, but what you'll hear will be quite different as each person is navigating their own challenges and reacting to Seattle's changes in their own way. Through this journey, you'll meet some of the people who make Seattle what it is, and you will likely find that you are not alone in the challenges you face and how you are feeling about them. You will get unfiltered personal stories, no narrative, no talking points, and no spin. I've reconnected with a few guests from earlier podcast seasons, reached out to new people, and will be setting up listening posts around the city in an effort to give you an unbiased take on where Seattle is and where it is going. Today's episode features David Wazalewski, managing partner at Dintai Fung Restaurants. He shares his perspective on what we can expect for downtown Seattle in both the coming months and in the long run. He also gives insight into how he has navigated his restaurants through this difficult time. Then you will hear from Jacob Weaver, co-founder of the Weaver Burn Group, a growing real estate company in the region. He explains whether now is a good time to buy a home and whether you could expect to see more construction of McMansions in the road ahead. And new to this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, I'll be peppering in some local trivia so you'll learn some fun facts along the way. So now, to learn about how one restaurateur has reacted to the changes around us, join me as I sit down with David Wazalewski. I'm here with David Wazalewski, managing partner of Dintai Fung. David, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Why don't we start by just having you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been doing uh, this for about 10 years now. We opened our first location at Bellevue, uh, at Lincoln Square, 10 years ago next month. And since then, we have, thanks to the support of the local communities, built three additional locations within the Seattle area. We also have a location down in Tiger, Oregon. And uh, we've been also uh, having partnership with CenturyLink and T-Mobile Stadium. So it's been a great 10 years. And tell me a little bit about Dintai Fung. So how did you start it here in the Seattle region 10 years ago? And what's the future hold? Sure, sure. Din Tai Fung is actually a restaurant that started 60 years ago in Taipei, Taiwan. It was a single store. And uh, in the last 20 years, it really has grown into an uh, international phenomenon. 
And I've been fortunate enough to partner with a family that started in Taifung and uh, took me three years to convince them to allow me to open one in Seattle, but I finally did. And uh, like I said earlier, 10 years ago, we opened our first unit at Bellevue Square, and uh, I guess the rest is history. And this is a big deal, by the way, for the listener. So I have a friend who lived in Asia, had Din Tai Fung there, then moved to New York and was desperate to get it. But they're very selective. So there's, as far as I know, there's not one in New York. And it's actually a very big accomplishment that you were able to bring that here to the Seattle area. Is that correct? Yeah, we've been very fortunate to uh, be the first uh, non-family partner in the U.S. And uh, at the moment, uh, we have five locations in Pacific Northwest. Uh, there are eight locations in California operated by the family. Um, and the exciting news is that uh, our Las Vegas unit will be opening next week. Oh, congratulations. So this leads me to my next question, which is, how are you coping professionally with COVID? And it seems like you're going strong opening a new restaurant. But tell me how you've been coping with that for your employees and for your business. You know, I tell you, um, COVID has impacted us. Uh, tremendously, uh, much like it has for everybody else. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have great people working in our company. And that uh, in the midst of COVID, uh, we actually won an uh, award uh, of the best place to work in the state of Washington, as well as Oregon. So we're very proud of that. And I think we were able to get through COVID uh, because we have great people at this company and uh, the, it hasn't been easy, and it's still not easy, because I don't think we're out of it yet. Uh, but we're definitely impacted negatively um, uh, by COVID. And uh, what we're trying to do really is, first and foremost, you know, take care of our people, make sure that the health and safety of our employees are taken care of, as well as our customers. And uh, we, we just try our best to uh, get through it. And... Are there any adaptations that you've made that you credit for your success to be able to keep going? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, obviously, um, state government, uh, as well as the CDC, has provided a lot of guidelines, which helps us, along with many other businesses, uh, to at least have the minimum uh, safety requirements for COVID. Uh, But on top of that, you know, we've done a lot of things internally uh, throughout the last six months. Uh, First and foremost... Uh, we've created a uh, disaster relief fund for all of our employees. And uh, because uh, just, you know, I think financially, a lot of people are impacted by this. Um, so we were able to create a little uh, disaster relief fund and gave it out to every single employee within the restaurant, uh, within our company. And at the same time, uh, we continue to uh, work really hard on creating a safe environment uh, for our employees to come to work every single day. And that, uh, you know, luckily, we've been able to pivot and partner with a lot of the uh, delivery carriers, such as Uber Eats, uh, Postmates, DoorDash, and such. Um, and, and, and that those partnerships has definitely helped getting our food out to the uh, customers who are staying at home and not coming out these days. And so let's talk about some of these changes around you. So you've talked about the changes you've made at Din Tai Fung. What changes here in Seattle have affected you most personally or professionally? You know, I I don't want to be too political about this, but um, besides COVID, you know, the uh, recent 
protests and the riots that we experienced here in Seattle and Bellevue um, has certainly impacted our business. And uh, whenever um, those events uh, happen, we would be forced to shut down and not be able to do business. So from a impact perspective, you know, that certainly has a direct negative impact to our business in terms of the way we operate. But we understand and we do what we can to uh, capture sales when we're allowed to, but certainly add additional stress to our to our staff. Which locations have been most affected and um, how did you react to that? Yeah, by, by far downtown Seattle. Uh, we have a location on the top floor of Pacific Place Shopping Center uh, on uh, 6th and Pine. And that, uh, that location definitely has been impacted um, by both COVID as well as the uh, uh, social justice movement. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, when Amazon says, you know, uh, we can have employees work from home for the rest of this year, um, so much of our business, uh, you know, was lost due to that one decision, right? So, but it's understandable. And uh, I believe that, uh, you know, in time, we will slowly build the business back up. But, uh, you know, downtown, downtown is a little uh, light right now. And all the conventions have been canceled. Most of the hotels aren't even open yet. Um, and we, 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 uh, we're, we're definitely feeling the, um, the negative impact. What about positive? What changes recently in the Seattle area have affected your business or personal life positively? I like to say that in the last six months, given what we've all gone through together as a, as a, as a city, you know, I do feel like people are more united in a weird way because I think people understand the difficulties that we're going through as a small business. And uh, a lot of people have stepped up and have, you know, continued to support us, um, you know, by buying our, uh, our product, uh, by buying our gift cards. Um, and at the same time, we've also have done a lot of uh, uh, donations to uh, local hospitals, uh, various local charities. Um, so I, I, I do see a sense of togetherness uh, because I, I do think that uh, Seattle people are very uh, together in the sense that we want to get through COVID and, and, and all believe that we will eventually. Going back to COVID and this pandemic, this pandemic's really trying for a lot of people and businesses. What about Seattle has made coping through these difficult times better or easier? It is my personal opinion that the fact um, Seattle was one of the first cities in the U.S. that really um, felt COVID back in early March uh, with the quote-unquote outbreak in the Kirkland nursing home. Um, it, it, in my personal belief, because of that, we, I believe we actually have done a better job than most other parts of the country. And, uh, even looking at number of cases in the last six months, certain, certainly in the last two months, it does feel like people in Seattle are acting more responsibly and that, uh, in, in a sense is somewhat controlled. Uh, in terms of the COVID situation right now. Um, but obviously, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. But, you know, I, I do believe that uh, the fact that we were one of the first cities in the U.S. that that dealt with it 
and I, I believe we, we might have been the first that shut down, um, sort of gave us a little edge in terms of, of, of how to deal with the situation. I do think that most of the people in Seattle, you know, do take this uh, pretty seriously. And do you think that extra level of caution is actually helping you in the restaurant business? Or is that extra level of caution uh, good to see personally, but causing more professional troubles? You know, we run our business with a long-term vision. So to answer your question, I do think that the extra level of carefulness um, will help our business, even though it may not help us short term. So people are staying home a lot more because they're concerned of COVID and therefore our business is down. But at the same time, you know, we believe that through our to-go business and just the fact that eventually people will come back and, and uh, uh, you know, we believe that long term we're still going to be okay. So, you know, I think short term we're all hurting a little bit, but I do believe the long term uh, uh, vision of, of, of what we do and what the city will do. Um, so so I think uh, I think we're going to be fine. Let's talk negatively. Has there been any aspect of going through a pandemic in Seattle that's made it particularly worse or particularly trying uh, professionally or personally? I, I think I can speak for everyone here by saying that, um, you know, human beings need interaction with other people. And when we're not allowed to, and it's very limited, um, you know, psychologically, I think it will, it will have, it takes a toll on people. Um, in a weird way, because we're essential business, so we've never quote unquote shut down completely. So we've been working every day in the last six months. So we have had a little bit of normalcy with regards to at least getting up and going to work um, on, a, on a daily basis. But I definitely can sense that, um, you know, most people, you know, being locked in at home for such a long time and not being able to do anything uh, with the friends and family members. Um, I can see that psychologically will eventually take a toll on people, if not already. Um, but, you know, uh, you can start to see. Uh, some uh, activities uh, opening up again, such as major sports. So you can at least watch TV and watch uh, real-life games. And, and I think that's helped. And we hope certainly to be able to have our um, CenturyLink opened up so that uh, people can go to the football games and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I, 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 I do think that um, from a negative impact standpoint, you know, not having the normal activities will help, will hurt people psychologically a little bit. So I want to get to a question about the future of Seattle. But first, uh, a new this season on Seattle Growth Podcast, uh, a trivia moment uh, where I'm asking my guests some random facts uh, just for fun. So there's no pressure here. But I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, which with somewhat recently, in the time that you've owned Dintai Fung here in the region, has celebrated its 100th anniversary. So my question for you is, can you guess what year the University of Washington Business School was founded? And it is now called the UW Foster School of Business. Uh, if you said it's 100 years, then I would say maybe, uh, I don't know, 1918? All right, it's a good guess. So you guessed the same year as the Spanish flu pandemic. I'll get you the answer <laughs> in a moment. We have to keep the, the listeners on the edge of their seat. Sure. Uh, I want to switch gears before we get to the answer to the trivia question. The future of Seattle, 
in this 10 years that you've been here operating Dintai Fung, Seattle's been growing so much people and money moving in at a rapid pace. What do you see for the next five years? Is this growth going to continue after we get through this pandemic? What do you see? I'm very bullish on the future of Seattle. Um, I think once we get over COVID, uh, we will bounce back rather quickly. I think there's enough pent up demand in terms of people wanting to go out and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and people from outside of Seattle wanting to come visit Seattle for various reasons. So I do believe that fundamentally Seattle is still a great market for us to continue to um, do business in. In fact, so much that uh, um, we are in the middle of expanding our commissary kitchen so that once the pandemic is over, we can continue to build more units uh, in the greater Seattle market and we'll be able to be uh, ready to capture those opportunities. Um, if you look at the, um, the health of the major companies in Seattle, whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Costco, you know, all these great companies are still doing very well. And so I think there's just a lot of uh, great news coming out of Seattle from that perspective. Um, it's a beautiful city. Uh, the weather, the climate, summertime is beautiful here. So all those attributes are still around. You know, as soon as we get over COVID, I do believe people will come back to Seattle for those uh, exact reasons. So therefore, we're very bullish on Seattle for the next five to 10 years. What about downtown in particular? Are you still bullish on the downtown core and that store that you have there on 6th and Pine, you said? I like to think so. You know, I, I do think that it is tougher down there than rest of the greater Seattle area. You know, I think um, we, we have to figure out a way to have the general public come back to Seattle without worrying about their safety and things of that nature. Um, again, without getting into too political uh, uh, debate here, um, you know, generally I do believe that if major companies start allowing to have the employees come back to work and downtown start to uh, have people working there again on a regular basis, the convention center start booking events, people filling out the hotels, um, then I do believe that Seattle will bounce back. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're a strong community. And, uh, so I do have faith in, 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 uh, in the way that we bounce back. And so bullish on the long run, you said five years or so. What about in the short run, next six months, next year, next two years? What are you thinking there for downtown in particular? Yeah. If you're talking about downtown Seattle in particularly, um, for the next six months, you know, obviously, um, it's going to be tough. Um, Given the fact that, you know, Amazon isn't coming back with their employees for another six months and many other companies in downtown Seattle will probably follow suit. Um, large conventions still not booking yet. Um, cruise lines aren't coming over uh, just yet. So um, I, I do see the next six months will still be uh, a little tough, you know, but I do think that uh, little by little, you know, uh, month over month, uh, we are slowly seeing more activities, and uh, so we just have to build from here, you know. Um, but but you know, if you're looking at the next six months, I don't I don't foresee a full rebound uh, just yet. And do you see Din Tai Fung staying in that downtown location in the long run? Absolutely, we still believe in the downtown uh, area. Um, our store 
will once again be uh, successful, and I'm a firm believer of that. Um, um, you know, maybe not the six, next six months, but if you're looking at a five-year plan, uh, sure, we, we would love to continue to do business down in Seattle. Any lessons for the listener from your experience uh, surviving through this pandemic that you'd want to share to help them through these difficult times? I'm not an expert at dealing with pandemics for sure, but what I can share with people is that uh, no matter how tough things get, you know, it is still very important to try to keep your normal routine, to keep your mind clear and healthy. Um, you know, so uh, I try to continue my workout routine. I try to continue my day-to-day routine. And really, it's, it's figure out a way to uh, keep your mind sharp, healthy, uh, and, and be in a positive mindset. Um, I do believe that uh, makes a difference uh, when dealing with crisis. Um, and I, we try to tell that to our employees within the company uh, to also um, communicate with management if they feel the need to talk about issues that they have um, uh, in relation to the performance. You know, I, I think we just need to be extra caring uh, in this type of situation. Uh, be willing to listen, be willing to lend, lend a hand to help wherever those are in need, and just have some sympathy. You know, I think if we can all treat each other a little bit better, uh, we're going to get through this together just fine. Do you have any asks of the listener, anything that you would like them to do to see a better Seattle or a better Din Tai Fung or uh, whatever you'd like to ask the listeners? Yeah, and I, I would say just be more understanding. You know, I think... Uh, We've all gone through a tough six months and most likely another three to six months of this to go. And uh, everyone's on edge. And I just ask everyone to be nicer to people, be more understanding, have more patience. Um, and, and, and I think together we will get through this. Uh, I'm a firm believer of that. So we're going to get to your concluding thoughts. I just, before I have to give you the answer to the trivia, you are close. 1917 oh, is when the off. University of Washington's Foster School of Business uh, was first founded. Um, so you were one year off, very close. And with that, I want to uh, give you a chance to make concluding thoughts. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, I, I appreciate you inviting me and giving me the opportunity. I'm very honored to be here and speaking to your listeners. Um, as a closing thought, I, I really believe that... Uh, it would be great if people can learn to take care of themselves, both physically and mentally, and also uh, be extra nice to people around you um, in a crisis situation that we're in right now. I think we just need to uh, be more understanding, be nicer, be more kind, be more patient, and uh, try to unite, work together. Um, and uh, I do believe together we will get through whatever issue that's in, uh, ahead of us. And I do believe that Seattle will be just fine uh, in the long term. So uh, with that, I, I, I again, I appreciate you inviting me. Uh, thanks to you very much for listening. David, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time and perspective very much. Before I get to my next interview, I want to hear from you. Did you know the answer to the trivia question? Do you have an idea for a future local trivia question that I could ask future guests? Or did you find something surprising in this first interview? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, and let me know. That's at Prof Shulman. Now, my next interview will give you a sense of how real estate companies are reacting to the pandemic and what to expect for the market going forward. To hear what's on the horizon for Seattle real estate, 
Join me as I sit down with Jacob Weaver. I am here with Jacob Weaver, uh, co-founder of the Weaver Burn Group. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate being here and uh, excited to talk a little bit about, you know, Seattle, what's going on, COVID, real estate, whatever we, whatever we Wherever the conversation with. goes. Wherever Excellent. it goes, that's right. So let's start, actually, just tell me a little bit about yourself. I uh, grew up in Idaho and uh, came out here for school, actually, uh, many years ago. And Can you tell me a little bit about the Weaver Burn Group? Real estate's a big pie. Uh, what kind of slice are you grabbing as the, in the Weaver Burn Group? Big pie it is. Uh, <laughs> there's so many different niches and ways to uh, you know, work in real estate. Really, we are focused, uh, it's my partner Brandon Byrne and I, and uh, he, he and I both come from investment real estate. So really, really what that means is that uh, you kind of see in residential real estate, there's there's two ways of, of kind of thinking. The first is investment real estate. Second is retail real estate, which is kind of the niche that everybody sees the most often. It is the um, the standard, you know, list a house, put it on the market, you know, selling broker represents a buyer and it transacts in a very normal fashion, right? Very um, consistent and typical way of doing business and that's what most people think of in real estate we come from the investment side where it's a little bit different um, the there's not so much a standard to every transaction it can be a lot more uh, fluid or uh, flexible in terms of uh, timelines terms the way you structure the financing like all of those things can can be done very differently and so we come from you know investment residential type uh type property so rentals you know small multifamily, single family homes duplex triplex those kind of rentals um we've worked a lot in the fix and flip communities so the, the rehabbers you know the, the people who are buying homes at you know some sort of distressed situation fixing them up reselling them um, on the retail market so we've done a lot of that and then uh what we really like is new construction so that's where that's kind of where we come from um now that we have a burn group Kind of back to your back to your question there. Uh, Weaver Burn Group is the the uh, combination of Brandon and myself. We come from two different areas of invest of investment real estate. Came together, started a group at EXP Realty, and uh, and from there, you know, we we partnered up, and now we are focusing about fifty percent of our business is still investor type transactions, and then fifty percent is retail, representing you know kind of the traditional buy sell model. Um, and with that, we're growing a team, so we're always always looking for uh, for good talent and good people. Um, so we've grown quite a bit in the last 18 months. Uh, it started with just the two of us, and now we're up to about 12 brokers on our team. That's going to clue us in as we get to the question of, is Seattle still growing and will it continue to grow? Uh, before we get there, I want to talk about COVID. This time has really been pretty trying for a lot of people. And I'd imagine, especially for real estate, where the traditional way of having parties and open houses and so on. Can you talk a little bit about how you've coped professionally with COVID, the COVID reality that we're in? That's a great question. And I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, you know, each industry is a little bit different, right? How it's been affected and, and all that. But um, ultimately, we've seen kind of two phases. Uh, the first phase, when everything was starting to kind of become a big deal back in March and April. I would say from there for about eight, six to eight weeks in, it was um, what I call kind of the first COVID phase for real estate. And really that was just a lot of unknowns for everybody, right? I wasn't sure like, hey, is it 
Is it safe to do business? Um, you know, is it, is it safe to interact with people? You know, the rules and regulations, as, as you mentioned, had changed quite a bit. You know, all the open houses stopped, which can be a great source of business for, for brokers. Um, construction sites basically shut down completely. So all construction, all remodeling, you know, all that halted for, for a while. And then ultimately, just the unknown of like, what's the economy going to do? What, what's the medical industry going to do? Uh, I, I think there was about a six to eight week period, at least what we saw, where everybody kind of got cold feet, both on the listing side and, and on the buy side. You know, a lot of the transactions that were, were pending, we started to see uh, some cold feet with buyers because they were thinking, okay, is the housing market going to crash? And now we're pending on homes that may or may not have the value there in three or four months. So that was a concern for buyers for sure. And then sellers, you know, the concern of having people in and out of their homes, that was a pretty major factor, um, at least in that first phase where nobody really knew what was going on. Everybody was kind of flying by the seat of their pants and trying to figure out uh, the best ways to do business, what are the best practices and what are, what are the new standards. So those were a couple things that were pretty dramatically affected. Uh, phase two, a little bit different. We started to see, okay, hey, some things are starting to shake out a little bit. Uh, buyers got a little bit more confidence in, okay, we're still here, right? There's no, um, there's no uh, dramatically detrimental effect in our neighbor, our, our, um, our communities specifically. And we can talk a little bit about kind of the buyer demographic and the jobs and all that. But I uh, started to see a little bit of normalization after that first eight weeks. And, and from there, we've consistently kind of seen uh, you know, kind of a, an increase in confidence and also in, um, you know, willingness to go see homes, willingness to put your home on the market, things like that. So the second, second phase, we've definitely seen things open up. You know, last week, actually, uh, Governor Inslee just opened up uh, moderated open houses. So we can have up to five people um, in an open house. So that's actually a new thing that brand new this week, right? So the rules are changing, getting back to normal. So we're in that phase now where we're kind of getting back to where we were in a way and, and the interest levels have been there. You know, homes are still transacting, especially in um, the, the more affordable price points. Open houses seem to be a fairly major part of the marketing plan and that just got taken off the table for many months. Did yeah. that not slow your ability to market and get the properties out there? So <laughs> it's funny you say that because during that first phase, we really took that as an opportunity to say, hey, there's a lot of brokers who rely on open houses almost exclusively to generate business. How do we how do we take that and and basically double down on what we're good at? And, and honestly, that was a time where we made hundreds of cold calls and we made uh, hundreds of direct outreaches. You know, we we used some of those networking opportunities that would have happened in person. And and we were booking Zoom calls and we were booking phone calls and and we we shifted our business to those methods, uh, which were much more accepted during those times than open houses and so we tried to look at it as like yes the market is shifting and and here's a window for us to differentiate from other brokers right um, i would definitely say yes the open houses affected many brokers business we did see uh, a lot of people you know slow down uh, i think that's that's probably a good word they they pumped the brakes for a little bit even while you know the brokers themselves were figuring out like hey do i want to be doing business in this environment and we tried to do the opposite that was our our goal like how can we generate business in all those other ways that 
are still very effective, but uh, less, less people are doing them during that time. With COVID and the pandemic creating trying times for many, I'm curious about what aspects of living in Seattle has made this pandemic better for you? Well, there's definitely some factors. Um, we look at a changing market as, as opportunity, right? Because really what happens, and, and you know this as well as anybody in, in business and marketing and the messages that you are portraying to, to clients or customers, when a shift happens, uh, some people make the shift quickly and some people don't, right? So it's an opportunity to, to become very competitive and to take market share when something's happening, right? When, when everything is stagnant and, and flat, then it's harder to get a competitive edge, right? When things shift, either economically up or down, right? That's when, you know, wealth and opportunity starts shifting hands and, and opening up like lanes of opportunity, right? So to answer your question, what's, what's made Seattle easier um, in a way is all the things that are unknown. Um, it's, really, it's really a speed, a speed game, right? How, how quickly can you notice an opportunity in Seattle, whether that's a zoning change or whether that's, um, you know, a, a financing kind of change, like all of those things are happening right now because the buyer pool is changing, you know, people are being affected by, by zoning, by COVID, by uh, riots, right, or, or protesting. All those things are affecting Seattle itself. And so we see the, uh, the number of opportunities like opening up very quickly. And, and sometimes that comes in the in the form of um, like a new way to structure a transaction or it could be hey you know this buyer demographic isn't being talked to it's not being uh, presented options in real estate and so we're finding that like the, the shift itself just the the number of variables that are changing is allowing us to get a competitive edge uh, for our clients and, and for our business just by being quick to respond to those those types of things Does that make sense yeah so we're going to get into some of those changes that you've noticed uh, here in Seattle, both positively and, and negatively mm -hmm. impacting you. But first, it's time for an innovation this year of trivia. Uh, so okay. I'm keeping the <laughs> listeners engaged okay. and engaging my, my guests with a little trivia. And so the podcast has really been about understanding the history, the past, present and future of Seattle yeah. uh, from a historical lens, cultural lens, political lens, sports lens. And so our first trivia question today is focused on uh, a guest from an earlier season, Lenny Wilkins. Okay. So he's a Seattle icon, many years at the Sonics. And so you just have to pick one of four. Which of these is not something that Lenny Wilkins has won during his time in the NBA? Coach of the year, an NBA championship, an Olympic gold medal, or an NBA finals MVP? Oh my gosh. You, you picked the exact wrong person to ask a sports trivia question to. This is great. Uh, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with C. C. Which I think it was Olympic medal. Okay. So you think he did not win an Olympic gold medal. Yeah. And again, I'm the, like the worst person to ask sports trivia to. So. Okay. How wrong am I? You will find out soon enough. But <laughs> okay. first, I need to learn right. more from you. Keep the listeners on edge. Keep you on edge wondering. Uh, about Lenny Wilkins, a Seattle icon who appeared on season two of Seattle Growth Podcast. Okay. Let's get into the changes. You said there's a lot of changes here. I'm curious uh, if you could maybe pick one or two changes that have impacted you most positively. One of the big factors 
that happened last year was that, uh, as you know, Seattle is in its, uh, its growing pains period in a lot of ways in terms of the desirability to live here and the amount of jobs that are creating wealth and, and good paying jobs and the uh, kind of the, the cultural and inventory uh, standards, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, you look at many major cities and the, the zoning is such and the inventory is such that it, uh, it allows for growth in, in, um, in a, a little easier manner. And, and what I mean by that is we have a lot of these amazing neighborhoods, right? We've got uh, this great craftsman type inventory in a lot of these older pockets. And what's been happening is, you know, the desirability of, of our city has, has gone up and jobs, you know, that pay very well have gone up and there's not enough places to live. And so one of the major shifts that happened was uh, in the new zoning requirements. And I'm not sure how familiar you are, you are with all this or your listeners are, but basically there were like over 20 neighborhoods that were upzoned, um, you know, relatively recently. So probably 12, 15 months, months ago, uh, they released a number of neighborhoods that were upzoned, both commercially as well as residentially. And what that did was for the investor minded, uh, you know, brokers and, and investors, what it did is it, it changed the whole set of financial uh, models for building and for renovating and, and basically creating density, right? And the goal was ultimately to create density in a way that uh, didn't happen super quickly and it happened in kind of a responsible sort of way. You know, there were a number of um, zones that required developers and builders to pay into a, uh, a pot for affordable housing, all of that. And really what it did is it took all of these lots in all of these neighborhoods and effectively in, in a week, in a week time period, it shifted all the, the numbers. So as a, an investor, you're looking at something totally different now. So both, both on um, the lots themselves. So what you could do with them changed. So, so the product that, you know, the inventory that was being built or created, all of those models changed as well as uh, like the desirability of each of the pockets. So, on a micro and macro scale, you started to see shifts in neighborhoods and what was becoming popular and also what could be built there. And so that was a big shift that did affect our business in, in a positive way. It definitely changed the conversations that we're having with those neighbors, with you know people who are buying and selling in those neighborhoods. It's it's a great conversation point and people want to be educated. So so that was, you know, helpful just in conversations with people, but then also on the investment side, it allowed for again, a shift in the market where all of a sudden a lane of opportunity, you know, appeared. Right. And, and so that was, that was definitely one area that in the last 12 to 18 months was, was a big factor in, in our changing atmosphere. So another one that it was a huge, huge factor that everybody is, is talking about or has some knowledge of was the dynamic with, with Amazon in South Lake union and in Seattle proper kind of the politics with the, the head tax and, and all those things that were ultimately making, uh, you know, Amazon business a little bit more difficult to, to function in Seattle proper. So long story short, uh, Amazon recently 
did not renew leases in South Lake Union, um, which which kind of plays into the, the COVID conversation as well. Like commercial real estate, that is an area that we could see some major, major shifts just because retail businesses and apartments, uh, you know, kind of commercial where people are working, the desirability and the need for it has gone gone down with COVID, right? So that ties into this conversation, but ultimately Amazon, uh, you know, Seattle, Seattle came off of Amazon's list and, and Bellevue went on it, right, in, in a very big way. So we're seeing a big shift from, you know, investors, but also kind of this entry level luxury buyer that was purchasing in Seattle, especially the new construction or in the, I would say, prime neighborhoods. We're seeing a shift over to the east side. And so good or bad, you know, maybe maybe it's a good thing for, for Seattle to cool down some of the growth. I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. But uh, we are seeing a shift from desirability from Seattle over, over to Bellevue, Kirkland, Issaquah, which I think is a pretty major, um, a major change, right? Seattle has been the hot hub for for a long time now. It's been on the top 10 lists again and again and again. And now I, I do believe that we're going to see some some uh, some very intentional attention directed towards towards the east side. And so that's a pretty major shift. You know, I, th- I think some of those jobs that, that have been paving this growth in, in Seattle, we might start seeing a little bit more of it over on the east side. So what are you seeing to suggest this expanded interest in Bellevue and Kirkland versus Seattle? So one of the, the big things that can make a certain jurisdiction more desirable than, than others is how well the city works with uh, builders, developers, business owners, right? And what we're seeing is that the, the long permit times in Seattle has become a bit of a factor. So traditional model, a builder or investor purchases a lot. It may or may not have a house on it, but ultimately they, they purchase the lot and then they submit plans to the city to be approved. And once those plans are, uh, the plans are approved and you get permitted, then you can tear down the house or, or start doing the groundwork to, to build a new home. Now, what happens when you have a jurisdiction that, that gets bogged down or has additional requirements that lengthen that time is that you ultimately increase the risk for the builder or investor uh, or you just increase the financing costs of that project. So if you have to hold um, you know, a project through permitting and it takes four months, then you have four months of holding time, holding costs before you can actually break ground and, and build the product that you ultimately sell. So what we're seeing is that Seattle has longer permit times than the east side. And so that is definitely a factor that affects you know, the financial model of building new homes, you know, especially in a higher price point. So the, the entry level and the mid, mid-level luxury, um, it's, it's actually much easier to permit and finance some of these projects over on the east side than it is Seattle proper. So that's just one example of, of, of how permitting and how a city works with an investor or a builder can really affect the desirability of, um, of investing in that community. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so I, you've touched upon it, but I, I want to ask it directly. Seattle's had this unprecedented boom, both the money and people moving into the city of Seattle itself over the last 10 years has been astounding. I want to get your outlook on, one, whether that growth will continue here in Seattle, 
And then it seems like you also have a great perspective to share on whether, if not Seattle, will it be in the Seattle region, the Pacific Northwest, or do you think the growth in this region is going to slow down? I think that ultimately we live in a beautiful part of the country. We live in a beautiful part of the country that uh, has a lot of amenities just outside the city. We also live in a geographically limited area. So unlike you know parts of California or Phoenix or, or something like that, we, we're relatively limited geographically. Like we're not going, uh, you know, east, east or west. You know, we have water and mountains. So, so I don't think that we are going to see the bottom drop out like any other you know, like some cities tend to see on in a periodic scale. But I do think, you know, we we're seeing changes, right? No, nobody really knows what's going to happen with, um, you know, with with COVID or or all those outcomes in the commercial space. But I, th I think we live in a in an area that is ultimately desirable, right? We live in a business hub. There's a lot of uh, good tech business that's here, which is I mean, the jobs are great. Right. They, they pay well. And a lot of them have even been able to move to the, the hybrid model or a work from home model. So ultimately, like we live in a desirable place in desirable cities. And uh, and even if there's some growing pains happening in Seattle in the short term. Ultimately, I think that we live in an excellent market. I don't see it, uh, you know, the bottom dropping out, anything like that. I, I think that we might have a short term uh you know, growing pains, but ultimately, like, we live in a great spot. We live in a great economic and um, affluent communities. So is now a time that you're advising people in Seattle to buy or to sell? Okay, so this goes into Weaver Burn Group model a little bit. That's a that's a layered question. And uh, if you don't mind, maybe I can unlayer it a little bit. Please do. Okay many different ways and scenarios to buy a home i'll start i'll start with that right so i think when people think of like should i should i buy or sell in a macro sense uh yes the location matters yes the economy matters yes like the street you're on absolutely matters the reality is like your situation and strategy associated with it could be very different and I'll give an example. This, this might be helpful. We've got a client right now who is purchasing their first home and they're qualified up to about 600,000, which depending on the pocket that could be considered affordable or, or not. Right. But ultimately it's the first home. They know that for 600,000, they're not going to buy their dream home in their dream location in Seattle, Bellevue, Kirkland. Like it's just, that's not uh, a forever home, you know, situation for them. So, we will buy for them very differently than we would buy for somebody who's like, Hey, I'm going to be here for 20 years. I can, I can pay, you know, full market value for a property that's listed on market and maybe I'm competing and writing up the strongest offer that I can. We're going to approach that scenario very differently, very differently. So it, it costs nine to 10% just to sell your home, right? So five, 6% for, agent fees. We've got 1.78% on average for excise tax when you sell. And then we've got title and escrow fees. You can pay off your taxes. It costs 9 to 10% just to sell your property, which a lot of people don't realize, right? So if you're only going to be in a location and your plan, your strategy and your goals are to be in a home for three to five years and then upgrade, 
you should not buy at 100 or 105% of market value, right? Assuming that there's going to be growth and appreciation. That to us doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So if you buy at 5, 5% over, over market value and in two years the market increases a little bit or stays the same, like you can't depend on appreciation, right? So, so our philosophy is like, okay, let's not, let's not buy at 105% of market. Let's figure out how to buy 10% under market, right? So let's, let's build in that buffer that, okay, if the market does, is not in your favor in two to, two to five years, then you still have the option to get your equity back out and upgrade to another home, right? So your question, you know, is it a good time to buy or sell? Your situation could say one way or the other, or it would just change the strategy in which we do so. What are you expecting to see happen in terms of this? You know, we've seen a lot of small homes bought, torn down, and these, I don't know what they call McMansions being yeah. put on. Do you expect the pace of that kind of development to continue? Here's a trivia question for you. Okay, I, I love it. If I can Reverse do this. Tri- please do. Okay. Reverse trivia. Okay, so those McMansions, right? Um, that new inventory that we're seeing, people think of those as, as a luxury home, right? My question, my trivia question to you is what do you think the King County entry level luxury home price starts at? And what is the, uh, the metric for measuring that? So there's an actual designation for a home to be considered a luxury home. There is. And you're saying that designation is based off of price. Then you want me to give you a price. It is, yep. And it's based off of another dimension, which you want me to, to guess? Yeah, how do they determine that price? I in see. A, in a given market. Okay. Wow, interesting question. I'm going to guess that luxury is de- defined based off of the multiplier on the median income in the area. Okay. And I'm going to guess that luxury in this market would be one million and up. One and a half million? One million. One million. Up. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're very close in those. You're very close. Thank you. Um, I, I see the stress when you're put on the spot here with the random yeah, question. Right? Yeah, right? It's a real thing. <laughs> uh, okay. So it's, de- it's determined by the top 10% of the market. Okay. So top 10% of sales, that's where your entry level luxury starts at. And for King County, that number is 1275000 which you guessed a million. Most people are on the other end of the spectrum and they, uh, they guess much higher. Okay. So, so you are a lot closer than I expected. Uh, it definitely is on the, the tail end of the bell curve, right? Uh, it's that top, top 10%, but you know, when you see a million dollar home, like doesn't always, it's not always that impressive, right? Which is a crazy thing in our market, right? You, you go into a home, you're like, Hey, that's a million dollar townhouse, right? <laughs> it's 1800 square foot, super vertical. And you can spend a million dollars on that, right? So what I'm seeing with those McMansions, usually, and I'm going to talk core Seattle, Bellevue areas, right? Those are usually starting about 1.7 million, 1.7 to 2.4. That's kind of your, your mid-level luxury, right? So if you're considering a million, million three, about a million three starts the entry level luxury, then that million eight to, to 2.2, 2.3, that kind of puts you in the the one tier up in luxury, right? So do I think that that is going to slow down? I actually don't. I don't. I think 
I think that that market right there, in order to buy a, a house that's a million eight to $2 million, the buyer demographic needs to be making about $300,000 a year. And that's assuming about 20% down, which if you look a lot at a lot of these buyers, they're, they're, they're either having a down payment from uh, tech stock options. That could be one method. But a lot of what we see is we see a dual income household, you know, one or both parties working in, in some sort of tech or medical sort of field. And a demographic that had previously owned a home back in 2012, 13, 14, 15. We're seeing the buyer demographic for those kind of McMansions or the new construction that you're, you're referring to, uh, they have two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in equity in the home that they bought five to seven years ago. It's actually a, a pretty reasonable jump for a lot of buyers so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think that, right? Like a $2 million home, that's a big number. Don't get me wrong, that's a big number. But the number of people who are making $250,000, $300,000 a year and purchased in you know 2012 to 2015 and have equity, it's actually a pretty big number. And so the demand is there. Do the economics still make sense given how expensive the entry-level homes are and the permitting and the construction costs? Yeah. So we're seeing these builders, and there's there's a whole range of builders, right? There's the builders who are doing two, three houses a year, and then there are builders who have, you know, 100 projects in permitting right now. And so we're seeing a lot of the, a couple of the, the main builders over on the east side and also of course Seattle, we're seeing a couple things happen. So the ones that are capitalized and can, you know, weather some of the timeline issues that we had this last, last year due to COVID, um, the ones that have solid bank financing, because ultimately, you know, banks are talking a lot right now. COVID is a, is a huge factor in, you know, a lot of the loans that the banks hold. So, so banks, you know, when they make a loan, they, uh, they ultimately, have collateral against an asset, right? And they put all these assets, these paper assets, right? These loans into big portfolios and that's how they uh, manage and mitigate risk, right? So in the commercial space, there could be some issues with people not, you know, either making payments or, you know, not able to, you know, job loss, but also businesses who are going out of these large retail spaces, right? That could affect banks' loan portfolios on the commercial side. So the builders who are building this, this home product, this mid-level luxury home, uh, the ones that have great financing and are well-capitalized are probably going to be able to weather you know, a lot of this, this financing churn that's happening in the background that you might not be realizing. I think you know, the, some of the trends we're seeing is like, are the same builders going to be building that product? Maybe not. Or is that product going to be built? Yes, I, I believe so. And that's what we're seeing. So a lot of the, the projects that are in permitting right now, some builders are saying, hey, maybe it's time that we sell to a builder that's a little more capitalized. And so those projects are still going to be completed. The inventory is still going to be in the market. The demand, I believe, based on kind of what we're seeing and hearing, is that, yes, the demand is there. But the builder might be different. So I want to get to concluding thoughts. But first, you gave me a pop quiz. I gave you a pop quiz. You gave me the answer to yours. And I now need to give you 
the answer. You said that Lenny Wilkins did not win an Olympic gold medal, or your guess was. That was. However, he was the head coach of the 1996 gold medal uh, team. Okay. And he won an NBA championship with the Seattle Supersonics as a head coach in 1979. Okay. He was coach of the year, not with the Sonics, but in 1993. And he was not the NBA Finals MVP. So I did not win a marketing cookie from uh, from UW today, did I? No, no marketing oh. cookie. Okay. But you did win a chance to share concluding thoughts. Uh, okay. Anything that... <laughs> you want to pass along to the listener about what we talked about or your thoughts on Seattle and its future? Yeah, yeah, I I would actually. Uh, there's, I think the biggest biggest takeaway is that uh, I don't think that a lot of people fully understand how many options they actually have in real estate. It's not a one size fits all sort of sort of thing. And like we were talking about, you know, your situation is is going to change the level of service and the strategies that that we provide. Right. So and really what we try to do is like how can we incorporate some of those investment strategies for our retail buyers when they make sense. So kind of a in conclusion, I think if you're somebody who's who's looking to purchase or looking to sell, asking questions and asking being very pointed questions with your broker, fully understanding that you might have a, a lot of different options that better facilitate what you actually need. And a lot of times people just don't realize that, hey, I could I could purchase a home off market before it ever hits Zillow or Redfin or or any of that, right? Like how you there are ways to be competitive, you know, on the buy side, on the sell side that that people just don't realize. So kind of a takeaway is if you're thinking about buying here in this market, don't just think about whether it's a good idea, yes or no, on the aggregate, but what is it that you're trying to achieve in the long run and in the short run and how might you change Absolutely. over time? Absolutely. Yep. Jacob, thank you very much for sharing your uh, perspective. I appreciate kind of learning about the real estate market, uh, learning about how the changes are affecting you professionally and really appreciate your time here today. Yeah. Hey, really appreciate you having, having me on and uh, would love to, to meet up with you at some point and learn a little bit more about marketing, what you do. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. To help others learn about what is happening in Seattle, please take a moment to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Giving a five-star review could be what gets your fellow community members more engaged in the past, present, and future of Seattle. And it's great to be back and to be back with more options than ever for you to be able to listen to Seattle Growth Podcast. Seattle Growth Podcast is now available on all major podcasting platforms and on local radio airwaves. Still to come on this season of Seattle Growth Podcast are interviews with business leaders, cultural leaders, small business owners, and everyday people who make Seattle the city that it is. Next week's episode features Pete Nordstrom, the president and chief brand officer of the iconic retailer that bears his family name. I hope you'll join me next week and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And in the meantime, I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey of the return of Seattle Growth Podcast.